Welcome to the Newsbusters podcast with your host, executive editor of Newsbusters, Tim Graham. Hello and welcome from one of the goofier parts of the vast right-wing conspiracy. It's the Newsbusters podcast. Well, maybe I'm the goof. Everyone else here is a scholar, but I am the kind of goofy person who listens to national public radio in the car in an earnest attempt to find out just how is it that our taxpayer money is being weaponized against us. You might have seen the Twitter fun and hijinks after NPR contributor Casey Morrell tweeted, Some great company news! We're launching a disinformation team! Oh, how we pounced. Conservatives all over Twitter, posting replies underlining NPR's many instances of spreading bias and disinformation. Oh yes, it ranged from their neglect of the 2020 Hunter Biden story, because the laptop, it must be Russian disinformation. Anything that comes out in October that makes the Bidens look bad must be a Russian plot. So we refuse to cover it. And then two years later, we go, oh, yeah, it was real. Next. Ah, uh, yes. And then, of course, there was the story misleading people with the lying so-called whistleblower Rebecca Jones about how Ron Death Santis responded to the coronavirus. My own favorite is from Nina Totenberg. Yes, the Supreme Court reporter best known as the personal assistant and publicist for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She had done a story claiming that Justice Sonia Sotomayor was upset at her colleague Neil Gorsuch for not wearing a mask at oral arguments. She appeared by Zoom. Well, there were denials all around, from Sotomayor to Chief Justice Roberts, Nina Totenberg created disinformation. I would like to just underline with a big highlighter marker just how badly Totenberg and her ilk have covered protests and intimidating acts. You know, so get out a highlighter or or shine a laser pointer at NPR till the cats get tired of jumping at it. As we've reported, NPR couldn't somehow roll out of bed to report that there was a foiled assassination attempt of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The assailant, or attempted assailant, flew up from California, got out of a cab, wanted to shoot him, and NPR couldn't find any story. Where was Nina Totenberg? You know and I know, if someone showed up at RBG's office door with a Nerf gun, she would have launched at them like Rambo on steroids. Wait, maybe Rambo was already on steroids. But NPR did nothing. NPR is clearly on the wacky wavelength of Toronto's own Samantha B. They think Kavanaugh deserves to have his peace disturbed for his awful beer-soaked opposition to abortion at all times. This omission is still getting my goat. Well, I don't have a goat. But I do have two tired cats after all that laser pointing. So there I was last week driving inattentively in my sensible Nissan Altima, listening to NPR. And they did this 10-minute story. Well, actually, 10 minutes and 43 seconds 
on the shock and horror of Trumpers who were going around knocking on doors and canvassing, asking people how they voted in 2020. That's right. No minutes on the surrendering Kavanaugh assassin, but 10 minutes and 43 seconds on those super curious people who knocked on your door and asked you how you voted in Trump's sacred election landslide. Did you vote by mail? And if so, did you wear your MAGA hat as you put it in the mailbox? It was so important, they put two reporters on this long-running investigative bombshell. Miles Parks and there in Colorado, Benty Berkland. Ah, yes, their panic sounded like this. Last year, two men came to Michelle Garcia's door. One had a clipboard and a baseball cap on. The other wore a blue-collared shirt and a lanyard. They wanted to know how she cast her ballot. Here's a snippet of their interaction, recorded by Garcia's front door camera. You can hear them say they're working to verify the 2020 election results. We're doing a voter verification project. Okay. We're working on for city voter rolls here. We wanted to ask a couple of questions about the 2020 vote. Okay. Garcia, who lives in Pueblo County, Colorado, says the two men asked her all sorts of questions, all pointing back to the baseless idea that the 2020 election was stolen. His specific questions were, did you vote by mail and ballot? How many times have you voted? He wanted to know who I voted for, who I supported. How do I know that it wasn't changed? And a lot of it was targeted at the clerk and recorder's office and that it was fraudulent. She told them she'd never had any issue with voting and didn't want to discuss her personal voting record. They were very aggressive. There was no boundaries with their ethics or with civility. They will push until you give an answer. Somehow, NPR is worried about the civility of people who show up at your door and ask nosy questions with a political bias. You know, like reporters do. I'm not sure if anything dramatic will happen from this door-to-door canvassing, but I think we can be sure it would be less dramatic than this Nicholas Roski fellow getting out of a cab in suburban Maryland with guns and duct tape to shoot some Kavanaugh's. I think we also know that if Planned Parenthood went door-to-door knocking on doors and asking if they could provide an abortion, or whatever, whatever Planned Parenthood canvassers would do, or NARAL pro-choice Americans, or ultraviolet, or whatever uh, your abortion group is, knocking on doors and canvassing would be wonderful, red-blooded American patriotic activity. But if you're a Trumper, you're a kook, and you're a danger to your fellow human beings. So this 10 minutes and 43 seconds wasn't enough, they also just yesterday devoted a 12-minute NPR politics podcast to this again with Miles Parks and his Colorado uh, associate, Benty Berkland. Now, NPR isn't shy about promoting the peaceful protesters outside the Kavanaugh house. They like that. On the June 27 All Things Considered, A few days after the Supreme Court ruling in Dobbs, it was a shorter three-minute report, but it was all the usual liberal things considered, all one-sided. Danielle Kurtzleben was reporting about some are focused on abortion access, 
Laura Kriv was among a small group protesting in front of Kavanaugh's house on Saturday night. And then Laura Kriv says, Just like the Janes started this movement years ago and took it upon themselves to make sure women had safe access to abortion, we're going to have to do the same thing. And I'm not going to wait for Biden to do something. And then Kurtzleben, the NPR reporter, concludes, with activists motivated to do so much to protect abortion access right now, it's not clear how much they see voting this November as a solution. So again, they are siding with people protesting outside Kavanaugh's house in violation of federal law, although now I suppose they could probably say the Supreme Court ruling has been made, so it's no longer intimidating the judge because the judge has already spoken. But there they are. A few days before the ruling, all things considered, had a big story on Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society. Oh no, speaking of vast right-wing conspiracies, the Federalist Society? This story starred liberal Washington Post columnist Ruth Marcus, and they touted her book from 2019, Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover, praised by luminaries like Bob Woodward and Jeffrey Tubin slash Tubout. Ruth Marcus, by the way, has written columns in the Washington Post opposing protests outside the homes of justices. But NPR didn't breathe a word of that. No, no. Their headline for this segment on Leonard Leo was, One Man's Outsized Role in Shaping the Supreme Court. Once again, NPR had 10 minutes and 53 seconds for this vast right-wing conspiracy expose. Zero for the Kavanaugh assassin, always 11 minutes to expose the conservatives. Actually, it was 13 minutes on their affiliated NPR podcast, Consider This. This is basically just a big pile of opposition research. The problem here is NPR is not supposed to be our opposition with our tax dollars. But that's what it's been for the last 50 years plus. It's a bunch of left-wing hacks using our money to try to destroy us. So anchor Elsa Chang and Ruth Marcus wanted to underline that Leonard Leo is one of those scary Roman Catholics. He's a very, very serious Catholic. He goes to mass daily. (gasps) Yes, that would certainly work to scare the NPR listeners who dye their hair pink and put their favorite pronouns on their Twitter bios. It sounded like this. The thing that's important to understand about Leonard Leo is his vision of judicial conservatism, of hewing closely to the text of the Constitution, a vision of not discerning in the grand phrases of the Constitution individual rights that aren't expressly stated. An individual right not expressly stated in the Constitution, the right to abortion. Marcus says when it comes to Leo's opposition to abortion rights, his legal reasons go hand in hand with personal reasons rooted in his faith. His Catholicism, in addition to his conservatism, is the other really animating strain. He is a man who has gone to daily mass since his oldest daughter, who was born with spina bifida, died in 2007. And he is a very, very 
serious Catholic. You know, one might think that NPR is like all those liberals who like this whole idea that very serious Christians should be sort of banned from voting since these people sound like disturbing theocrats. These people want to put their rosaries on my ovaries. The left seems to want what I would call an atheocracy. Yes, it's a democracy that's limited, you know, like a good progressive disco. Let's just stick to allowing in the secular people and their affiliated Democrats who tout their rosary beads in the pocket at election time. Oh, yes, you know who I'm talking about. In the fall of 2020, helpful NPR reporter Asma Khalid did one of those cozy stories about how Joe Biden carries a rosary in his pocket and attends mass every Sunday. And he is known as a deeply devout person of faith. So Leonard Leo, scary, attends mass daily. He's ruining America. Joe Biden attends mass weekly with his rosary. He's wonderful because he's a Democrat. He's that kind of Catholic that wants to make Catholic hospitals do abortions. What kind of Catholic is that? I'd say he's not one. How about you? Yes, last fall in 2021, NPR went looking for so-called ordinary Catholics to shame the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops from ruling that pro-abortion Catholic politicians like Creepy Joe should be denied communion on Sundays. So as we know, NPR favors an NPR-friendly Catholic church. You know, one that just sounds like the Unitarians or the, the Episcopagans. Now, at least in this Leonard Leo story, there was a brief appearance by Republican Ron Bonjean, who used to work for Senator Trent Lott back in the day. There, on all things considered, there was a small consideration of the Republican viewpoint in an otherwise very tilted story. It's almost shocking that this happened. I mean, you could say all the quotes they shared from Leonard Leo were a balance, but Leo refused to be interviewed by NPR, which was probably the right choice. Bonjean was there to rebut Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who was doing all his usual complaining about all this dark money spent by the right-wingers in judicial nominations. Yeah, like the left-wingers never do that. I mean, Bonjean was allowed to point out, the left does this too. They surely did it for Katanji Brown-Jackson. Then let's get back to Nina Totenberg and the NPR Politics Podcast. On July 1, she showed up to discuss the Kavanaugh assassination attempt. Well, no. <laughs> okay, that's a sick joke. Nobody touched it there either on that show. So online at NPR.org, when you go into the archive, the headline on this July 1 podcast was, as the Supreme Court ends its term, the Christian nationalist right keeps winning. Yeah, that's apparently what we are now. We are the Christian nationalist right. Let's try to compare all the Christians and all the Catholics to white nationalists who are basically racists. Then there was a photo of a flag that said, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. Now you look at the caption and the photo was from October 25, 2020. So it wasn't inaccurate at the time. 
But I think the implication from NPR for its little listener base was, <laughs> yes, the Christian nationalist right who's winning on abortion, they're all election deniers. On this show, Totenberg mourned that Katanji Brown-Jackson knows she's becoming part of an institution that has, well, shall we say, lost its shine. And I think that worries her. Yeah, this is, this is the way liberals report on the court now. When they actually vote for something conservative, they've lost their shine. If you're liberal enough, you can shine like a Brett girl. But then... It's the handmaid's tale when the conservative supermajority rules against Roe versus Wade. Yes, the whole Supreme Court has gone to pot. And uh, that's what Nina Totenberg thinks, because, you know, she never convinced Ruth Bader Ginsburg to maybe step aside before she she died. You know, maybe she should have stepped down in 2015 or 16. I don't know if Nina Totenberg actually asked her to do that. I'd guess not, because it's always seemed to me that Nina Totenberg was there like a supportive superfan. So this is how Nina Totenberg now describes poor Joe Biden, who's burdened with a conservative Supreme Court. One of the things that's so interesting about the American form of government is that presidents who have been elected in modern times they have to live with a Supreme Court that was appointed by their predecessors. And mm -hmm. that can be very uncomfortable. Ronald Reagan, you know, was frustrated in his attempts to do away with a lot of regulatory law that had been established by previous courts. Now, President Biden, more than any president in recent history, or certainly since I've covered the court, which I regret to say is now like close to a half century, um, no president has been in this position. This moment is the fulfillment of the right, some would say the extreme right, and their plans to essentially get done what they couldn't get done in Congress yeah. by taking possession of the Supreme Court. And they've there's now a supermajority on that court, and presidents, Democratic and Republican, are going to have to live with it for some time to come. Oh, yes, we're now going to have to just live with the conservative Supreme Court for who knows how long. We're so oppressed with the Democrats in charge of everything else. They're so unhappy, though. There's so much they can't do because of the 50-50 Senate. They get so cranky. Liberals like the ones at NPR now want to insist the right-wingers are using the courts to augment policies that are not supported by most Americans. Oh, really? As if the Warren Court and the Burger Court didn't make a pile of so-called landmark decisions in opposition to public opinion in the 60s and the 70s. Well, public opinion was wrong then, so it's, that's, that's different. And we know that the media tend to paint the public as 70% pro-abortion. But that misses that a lot of Americans are in the middle. A lot of Americans could accept the 15-week abortion limit that Mississippi came to court with. Most Americans don't support abortion at any time for any reason on demand. Of course, when you say anybody or any state supports that, the abortion-supporting independent fact-checkers jump in where their factual ultrasounds. Pants on fire! Four Pinocchios. Oh, no, wait. 
Liberals don't like women looking into ultrasounds. Uh, Totenberg also said conservatives don't even get along now on the Supreme Court. That Clarence Thomas was saying that back in the Rehnquist days, they really liked and respected each other. But now, Nina says, there was a center on that court. The court could move right and left to adjust in certain areas. And that's not true on this court. It's just a question of whether it's going to be very conservative or extremely conservative in these hot button issues. I will remind you that the Nina Totenbergs of the world, that when John Roberts was nominated for Supreme Court, couldn't stop saying enough. He's very conservative. He's very, very conservative. He's very, very, very conservative. When they nominated David Souter, Dan Rather was running around like his hair was on fire saying, oh, anti-women's rights, David Souter. How did that turn out, Dan? Fake news like everything else you put out. My goodness. John Roberts has not turned out to be very, very conservative. And when they start talking about a conservative supermajority, you know, they, they play John Roberts both ways. Right? They run around and say, well, there was only five votes to overturn Roe versus Wade. John Roberts said he didn't want to take it down to the studs. But then John Roberts did basically side with the conservatives. So it was a conservative supermajority. One last issue when it comes to NPR and the post-Roe environment. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has filed suit against Biden's Health and Human Services Department because they're doing this really sketchy thing. They're trying to use a, an old law on emergency medical treatment and saying that that would include women should just be able to come into hospitals and, and, and request abortions, even in states that have now outlawed it. Paxton, in his court appeal, said... President Biden is flagrantly disregarding the legislative and democratic process and flouting the Supreme Court's ruling before the ink is dry by having his appointed bureaucrats mandate that hospitals and emergency medicine physicians must perform abortions. He added that this emergency medical treatment law does not authorize and has never authorized the federal government to compel health care providers to perform abortions. And this is really the biggest issue, is the whole idea that the, that the Biden, the devout Catholic president's HHS bureaucrats, are going to say that if you accept Medicaid, which everybody does in the hospital world, then you have to provide abortions for anybody who wanders in and says they want one. Well, they wandered into the emergency room and said that they needed an emergency abortion, so you have to give them one. It doesn't matter. It violates your Catholic principles. This is the spirit of Obama-Biden, the same one that took the nuns to court, the little sisters of the poor. Because people who love abortion want to force people who think it's murder, who know it's murder, to get about the murdering already. Well, how did NPR handle this? Oh, well, you can understand. Kevin Tober blogged that the networks haven't really done this. ABC, CBS, and NBC. But of course, NPR did get back to this on Morning Edition on July 15. They interviewed a pro-abortion law professor at the University of Texas to assert that Paxton's argument was weak. Yes, you always think it's weak when abortion should be done at all times. NPR in the same show that morning also pressed Biden's Gender Policy Council director, Jennifer Klein, from the left. 
They were insisting the Biden administration needed to offer legal assurances to emergency doctors who provide abortions in red states like Texas. They should know they can do this and not get in trouble. NPR, as usual, coming at everything from the feminist direction with our tax dollars. Yes, you may be a good daily mass attending scary Catholic, but your tax dollars are still going to NPR so they can mess with you. And they ask us, you know, in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, I have to pray for my enemies. And certainly, the Catholic Church's enemies are all over national public radio. Now, in the wake of this whole NPR disinformation effort, there was an effort on Twitter. Uh, the hashtag or the phrase defund NPR uh, trended on Twitter. Now, of course, if something trends on Twitter, you know it's not just the conservatives said defund NPR. It's that the left went crazy cuckoo that those words were used. So that's what made it trend. So you had all these left-wingers talking about all the maggots who wanted to defund, defund NPR because it was the channel of truth and all that kind of stuff. And, of course, speaking of misinformation, where we began, I had to respond to several kooky tweets where they tried to assist, uh, uh, assert some of these Ukraine flag lefties. I, I, I love the Ukraine flag. That's great but then you're nuts and everything else. This guy was saying, you know, it's pretty funny to say that NPR should be defunded when they don't accept any federal funding to begin with. <coughs> that is inaccurate. And, you know, the fact is, the way that the NPR game works is the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, for the most part, is giving community service grants to NPR stations. NPR stations then send that back to NPR HQ in Washington for programming services. And then NPR tries to claim that only 2% of its funding is federal. That is false. I don't know what the percentage is because NPR's financing is meant to be confusing on purpose. But we are going to stay on this, even though most conservatives aren't kooky like me and listen to NPR for the opposite of fun. If you want to know what's going on there, though, you can come to us at Newsbusters. Come once, twice, 24 times a day. And thanks for listening. <laughs>